1: From the campus of the University of Utah in Salt Lake City,
2: the Utah Debate Commission welcomes you to the gubernatorial Republican primary candidate debate. Good evening and welcome to a live debate between the four Republican primary candidates running to be their party's nominee for governor in the state of Utah. My name is Bruce Lindsay. I have been invited to moderate this evening's debate, sponsored by the Utah Debate Commission. This event, held on June 1st, is part of the Utah Debate Commission's work to educate voters and to encourage the civil exchange of ideas. The four Republican primary candidates are with me here, socially distanced, in the Dolores Dory Eccles Broadcast Center on the campus of the University of Utah. They are, alphabetically, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, former Utah House Speaker Greg Hughes, former Utah Governor John Huntsman, and former Utah Republican Party Chairman Thomas Wright. They are competing to become the Republican nominee for governor on the ballot in November. If you are watching or listening to this debate live, we encourage your comments on social media using the hashtags UTDebates or Listen, Learn, Vote." Now, the Utah Debate Commission has established the format to be used for tonight's debate. Candidates will have a designated amount of time to respond to each question that I and I will specify the amount of time in each case. And the moderator has discretion to permit brief rebuttals as well as to ask follow up questions. A random draw approved by the candidates held prior to the debate determined that John Huntsman will respond to the first question first, and the order will thereafter follow alphabetically. We will alternate to uh, answers first on the remaining questions throughout the debate. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. The debate commission uh, weeks ago committed to you that you would receive some form of an introductory debate, uh, introductory question, so that you could talk about yourself. In conformity with that and acknowledging the reality of our present situation, let me phrase the question this way, if I may. Given the riots over the weekend, unprecedented in the state of Utah, what makes you superior to, don't be shy, what makes you different from the other candidates on this stage in terms of your specific leadership abilities to bring healing to the divided communities of our state? Mr. Huntsman.
3: Bruce, thank you, and uh, welcome to all fellow Utahns who are tuned in. One word leadership. Two words, experienced leadership. I've been in the saddle before as governor. I've brought people together. I've helped to build this economy. But what you need to know about me, I'm standing here as a candidate because I'm married to the finest human being I know. I'm standing here as a candidate because I have seven kids who inspire me, including two who wear the uniform for the United States Navy. I'm standing here because I know what we have been through most recently has caused anxiety and a lot of despair on the part of people. I know it's a confused world. I see opportunity for our state in that confusion. But I'm here also because I believe in conservative libertarian philosophies that I think should guide our future, Bruce. And I'm standing here because I believe we have an historic opportunity not just to recover from pandemics, riots, and uncertain times, but to be reborn. Reborn is the crossroads of the world. I will sell for nothing less.
2: Thank you, Mr. Huntsman. Mr. Wright, why are you the superior leadership choice?
4: I believe that we need to listen to each other in society far more than we are right now. We have a variety of differences. We come from different backgrounds. And I believe that people that come from different temperaments, talents and convictions are superior to those who are similar. As governor, I want to sit down and I want to listen. I've been the only candidate in this race that's consistently given out his personal mobile phone number. I'm getting about 20 calls an hour some days, and I'm talking to candidates or I'm talking to voters and citizens about all kinds of issues. If we want to heal our divides and we want to understand each other, we must first learn to listen. I have consistently done that in my life. I've done that in my business, and I will do that as governor by bringing people together. By listening, by having the difficult by having difficult conversations, talking about difficult things—the things that divide us right now—we are a strong people, but we have healing to do. We need to get together. We need to talk things out and come up with a plan by listening to each other's perspectives. And as governor, I'll do that.
2: Thank you, Mr. Wright, Mr. Cox. Why are you the superior leader to bring us together?
5: Ladies and gentlemen, six and a half years ago, out of nowhere, Governor Herbert asked me to serve as his lieutenant governor. It was a surprise to me. It was a surprise to our family. But it's been the honor of a lifetime to serve in that position over those past six and a half years. You can see my record. It's very clear. I have a history of bringing people together, bringing disparate groups together, bringing voices to those who feel like they often have no voice. What's special about Utah, we are facing hard times, but we faced hard times before. And we always come back better and stronger. We are an example to the nation. When I was asked to serve as lieutenant governor, I almost said no, because we were staying in Fairview. It was a 200-mile round trip every day, and it was my wife that changed things. She said, maybe the fact that we don't want to do this means that we should. There are too many people who want these jobs. We need more people that don't, people who can understand and reach out to those who are suffering. We know in Utah that the answers will never come from Washington, D.C. They will come from Main Street and State Street, from Logan to St. George. That that's why I'm running for governor, to bring us together.
2: Thank you, Mr. Cox. Mr. Hughes, why are you the superior leader to bring us together? Thank
6: you, Bruce. Great question to start this debate with. I am the proven conservative in this race, proud to say it, with a track record. Um, look at what's happening right now. We're seeing some brazen behavior on all fronts and in many ways. These are strange and challenging times that we're in. I will tell you this. We have a movement right now with the Democrats that are just saying and saying it very clearly that they would like to change their registration, not because they are converting to our party to become Republicans. They've read the platform and they want to be a a Republican. They're doing it to influence the outcome of our party's uh, nominee. What I know about what's happening, if you don't believe me, just look at the news, uh, news reports. We have uh, we have interviews going on that say anyone but Hughes. You've got Jim DeBacchus, who was the chair of the Repu- Democrat Re- Utah Party, who's a Republican, registered Republican today. We brought people together when on Operation Rio Grande. We fought lawlessness. We took on things people said they couldn't, but we did it as a conservative and through with
2: cons- conservative so, principles. I would like to stay with uh, news of the day and give you each a chance to respond to this headline. That is widely reported a conference call this morning from the White House to the nation's governors. And the report says the president described governors as weak in the face of racial unrest and said if they did not confront protesters with force, they would look like fools. Widely reported. If you were governor and you were on that call, how would you respond to that advice, Mr. Wright, for a minute?
4: Well, this is a time for leadership in the state of Utah. And let me tell you, this time we find ourselves in is very difficult. And I'm not afraid to talk about what I saw when it comes to George Floyd. I was very uncomfortable with what happened. I was devastated. It was hard to explain to my children, and I want to tell you the solution to the problem. Number, not a solution, an idea that I have as governor, a very specific idea, and I hope that the viewers today will listen to what I say. I'm not gonna answer these questions in platitudes. I'm gonna give specific ideas. As governor, I want to get involved in the Peace Officer Standards and Training, uh, and that's called POST. It's the Post Council. As governor, I will direct the commissioner of public safety and his role on the Post Council to ensure curriculum for all new and future officers so they'll be trained, so that they're listening and learning and we're being compassionate with each other and we can take action on, on racial inequality. And we could even discuss a course for current police officers, so I know they want to be a part of the solution, and they should have an equal opportunity. Together Utah can come together and lead the nation on this front, and that's what I would have told the president.
2: Mr. Cox, how would
5: you respond to that suggestion to use greater force? Let's be very clear. The death of George Floyd was a murder, and there is no place for police brutality in America. We know that, and we have to stand up strong. At the same time, these lawful protests that are taking place have been hijacked by agents of chaos, by people who don't care about the movement at all, who aren't trying to make the world a better place. They only care. About destroying lawfulness. They care about destroying property. They care about defacing property. And we must, and we did, respond with strength to those people so that we can allow the people space who are protesting lawfully, so that we can work together and we will work together. We're working with our multi, Multicultural Commission. We're working with our Martin Luther King Commission. We're actually, we have a meeting scheduled for tomorrow to talk about these very issues. But there is absolutely no place for Chaos. There is no place for destruction. We must have law and order.
2: Mr. Wright, how would you have responded to that encouragement? I'm sorry, Mr. Hughes. Hughes. Hi. Uh, so let's choose our words carefully. Protest versus
6: riot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a big difference. I join in the protest of what's happened to uh, to uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Floyd. The uh, the issue is not the protest, the outrage, the murder that we did truly see before our eyes on that camera. And there have been peace peaceful protests that have happened there's nothing wrong with that in fact it's incumbent upon us to really push back when we see this and there was something amazing happening in this country where we were it didn't matter what party you were or what, what uh you know philosophy and politics you subscribe to there was a recoil that happened in this country that has been robbed from those that care the rioters those that look to prey upon the weak those that try to create fear civil unrest uh, break the law that isn't what this is about that's not the protest or the, the the feelings that we all as a nation felt and that is what has to be dealt with head on i'm with this president if you're going to go and, and go find uh quarantine issues to bring down the law but you're not going to let these issues be handled and you're going to let these rioters go that's a deal killer and we cannot let that happen to our country or our state mr
2: Hussman.
3: I'd have a conversation with the president, like I have on many occasions. Uh, We shoot straight with each other. I've got a good relationship with him. Um, But I would ask, first and foremost, are we doing enough to thank law enforcement for putting their lives on the line? Are we doing enough to thank them and their families for the restraint that was shown in the face of anarchy? And then I would tell the president something else, because I served him in Moscow. I'd say on Saturday, I saw something I've never seen in this state. I saw Black Hawk helicopters circling in the sky downtown. I saw Humvees at the intersections. I heard curfews that were being enforced by the state. I would say, Mr. President, I'm concerned about civil liberties. This is not what we see in the state of Utah. Maybe others, but not here. This is what you see in other countries. We have the ability to manage our own situation. Thank you very much.
2: Let me just follow up very briefly. There's been a distinguish, you, you've differentiated between uh, violent and nonviolent. Protests this week. Would you just speak for 30 seconds to what you perceive as being the underlying cause of each of those,
4: Mr. Wright? Underlying cause for what exactly?
2: For the grievances. What are these people trying to say? Who feel like they're not being heard, so they turn well, to demonstrations?
4: Well, they're frustrated. They're frustrated by the the leadership that they see on so many issues that face our country, whether it's racial inequality, uh, law enforcement challenges. Uh, They see a lot of challenges in our state and in our country, and they're frustrated and they're speaking out. And this is why I've said consistently in this race that we need to elect new people. If we continue to elect the same people, we're going to continue to have the same problems. We have challenges in this state, we have challenges in this country, and they can be solved by new people that have new perspectives. I'm the only person here that's not a career politician, and I sincerely ask for people to consider me with their vote.
2: Mr. Cox, what do you hear from those demonstrations?
5: Well, there is for sure real frustration, especially in, in our black community, those who for generations have felt this type of discrimination. Um, at the same time, there's frustration within our police departments when they feel like they're not getting the support from some elected officials that they deserve. We also lost one of Utah's finest in Ogden this past week. And, and we, we must remember how difficult these, uh, these jobs are for the, the men and women in law enforcement. They deserve our support, and they are working round the clock to stop these rioters and these looters and to protect the property and lives of, of Utahs, even those that are protesting.
2: Mr. Hughes, what messages are you hearing?
6: So, look, I would, uh, the premise of the question I actually reject. I don't believe that the people we are, that we are seeing that are rioting are the same people who want to have I their voice hear. heard. I don't That's not the premise. Uh, yeah, so I would say that they haven't turned their voice to violence or to doing something like this. You have people, I have a very good friend of mine that has every right, more so than anyone on this stage, to be incensed about what's happened. OK, and this person's described the violence in our city and he lives here in Salt Lake as punks, as punks that have come and exploited an issue that's happening and is ripping at the heartstrings of people in this state and are exploiting it to create fear. We have to have strong law enforcement. I, I, I cannot believe that we have even a tone of, of adversarial tone towards our law enforcement. that are trying to maintain public safety and prevent lawlessness. i call time. Mr. Sorry. Hussman. I've worked hard to
3: defend the rights of people to protest. That's an American tradition, and we should all be proud of that. Um, But people feel, and the reason that President Trump got elected, is you have people who feel that the American dream is no longer achievable, that the promise of America no longer works for them. So it's not about where we've been, the anarchy on the street, it's where we're going. It's bringing people together and having conversations and working toward problem solving. Just as I discussed with Reverend Franz Davis, one of my great friends and leaders in this community, it's not where we've been. It's where
2: we're going that will make a big difference. Thank you. Let me note uh, for our broadcast viewers, there, there's not an audience in the studio. Uh, the few of us here are following guidelines for uh, public health because we do have another crisis for a governor on our hands. Let me turn to this uh, debate's media representative, Lad Egan, a political reporter from KSL, to pick up the questioning.
7: Good evening, candidates. Uh, Utah has racked up more than $100 million in emergency spending since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen some successes and some mistakes. So I have a two-part question for you. First, has that taxpayer money been spent effectively? And second, what have we learned to better prepare Utah for the next public safety emergency, whether that be another pandemic, an earthquake, or another natural disaster?
2: That would be first to uh, Mr. Cox.
5: Well, thank you for the question. Um, The last two and a half months have been some of the most challenging in our state's history. We have called upon local leaders uh, across the state at at every level of government, Uh, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, the faith-based sector. We have all worked together on this response. I'm very proud of the people who have been working together and made those decisions in that response. Certainly, in hindsight, there are are some things that, that we could have done differently. But by and large, we have had a tremendous response to, uh, to this, this coronavirus crisis. And I think it's important to point out the facts and some of those uh, those important numbers. Uh, we were one of only seven states that didn't have a statewide shutdown. A uh, recent study came out that showed that there were 45 states who had, uh, who had more more serious restrictions on the economy and on this, the liberties of people than the state of Utah. We were in the bottom five in that category. Um, you've heard a lot about Dr. Fauci and President Trump. Disagreeing on things. Uh, one of the things they both agree on and have said publicly is that the state of Utah has done a tremendous job in managing this response. Again, not just economically, but from a health standpoint as well, to have one of the lowest hospitalization rates in the country, to have one of the uh, lowest mortality rates in the country. People have sacrificed and it has worked. And so, a- as a state, this is what we, we do best in times of trial. We come together and seeing what we have seen. It, again, during the worst pandemic, the, the, one of the worst crises in, in in our lifetimes, for sure. We've seen Utah's come together to lift each other up. We have sewn 5 million masks as Utah's for our frontline workers. That kind of stuff doesn't happen anywhere else. Just today, our farmers are taking more sheep um, and, and food down to the residents of, of uh, San Juan County, those who of our tribal nations who are struggling right now. That's the best of Utah, and this pandemic has brought out the best in Utah
2: Mr. Hughes, the state's response to the coronavirus
5: look, I uh,
6: initially we had to get inside. We had a virus upon us that we didn't know with, with our uh, with how contagious it was if we could spread it without experiencing symptoms uh, it was i was I was all in on closing and, and being inside. BUT YOU CANNOT CLOSE THIS ECONOMY BY GOVERNMENT EDICT. YOU CAN'T DECIDE AS A GOVERNMENT WHAT BUSINESSES ARE ESSENTIAL OR NOT ESSENTIAL. YOU CAN'T EVEN BEGIN THE RUNWAY OF HOW YOU'RE GOING TO GET PEOPLE BACK TO WORK AS SOON AS POSSIBLE. THERE IS NO, IT IS A FALSE PREMISE TO SAY THAT WE CAN STAY IN LOCKDOWN AND SELF-QUARANTINE WHILE THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT PRINTS MONEY TO REPLACE ECONOMIC ACTIVITY. IT WAS NEVER AN OPTION. WE FIND OURSELVES WITH AT LEAST 115,000 PEOPLE THAT HAVE LOST THEIR JOBS AS WE HAVE PROLONGED uh, this, THIS EFFORT. This is not an acceptable way. I will tell you that the Bill of Rights are a government that tells you what businesses are essential or not. A phone that if it crosses state lines goes off like an Amber Alert asking you who you are, where you're going and what your health status is. You know, communist style snitch hotlines that have been asked of of citizens to engage in. This is, this is born by fear. We never make good decisions out of fear. We learn from this that the Bill of Rights always apply, especially in a crisis like this. So we learn from what we've gone through. I still don't see where we're getting people back to work right now. I'll tell you, as far as single-source, no-bid contracts go, Uh, There's a lot of questions, and I know that in a state of emergency, there's a lot of time, or there's not a lot of time, and we're trying to do things quickly, but we have large technology companies who've said on the record that they offered these things, Apple and Google, uh, for free. You have smaller tech companies that said the same thing. We're left asking the question, what is this about? Why uh, did it happen the way it did? We're not getting clear answers. And I think that, that what we learn from this and we don't do again is we make sure that's a transparent process. And we, uh, lastly, we have to reform our laws regarding state of emergencies and health department orders so that we don't see our constitutional liberties and some of the behavior we've seen in this pandemic ever happen again. Mr. Huntsman, lessons
2: from COVID in Utah.
3: Oh, I think there are a lot of lessons. Um, And we will have another pandemic at some point. That's just how we're interlinked. Um, I think we made a huge mistake by politicizing this whole episode. So the Hong Kong flu in 1969 never politicized. The experts ran it. So it would have been a good thing to have Dr. Dunn, who's perfectly qualified as an expert, to handle this situation. Instead, it was politicized. So what does that do? It leads to... $100 million, uh, no transparency deals that still have not been properly explained. So part of being a leader, I know because I've been governor of this great state, is standing up and taking responsibility when you screw up. And that's what we've had. So what does it lead then to? It leads to a lack of trust in our institutions. So when people see that happening, they trust less and less in our elected officials and less and less in our process. There hasn't been a fair hearing on this. No one has stood up and taken responsibility for it. I don't know why, but we politicized the pandemic, and I think that was our mistake. What should we do going forward? I believe that going forward, we need to be very realistic about those who are at risk, and the numbers and the data are pretty clear. The folks who have tragically passed, and it's a heartbreak in every case. They've been over a certain age, pre-existing conditions, and many in long-term care facilities. Many others probably belonged in long-care health facilities, but maybe couldn't afford it. They were also in a vulnerable category. That might be 15 or 20 percent of our state's population. We shut the place down. Why? Every county is different in this state, yet we practically treated everybody the same. Next time, let's keep 80%
4: open and handle those differently who are most at risk. Mr. Wright, please. COVID hit us hard and it hit us out of nowhere and nobody could have seen it coming. So you don't want to politicize it and you don't want to make uh, decisions from a rear. But what you do want to do is you want to learn from it. And I appreciate the question. What we have learned is that we need checks and balances in government. We need to make sure that executive orders are not the governing rule of the day, that we cannot govern like that. We need guardrails put up by the legislature. We need the people's representatives to be involved in those decisions when they go on for an extended period of time. But the main lesson I've learned from the pandemic Is that businesses have been hit hard, really hard. I'm a small business owner. I'm the only business owner on this stage with 250 people in my care. And I know what it's like to have to manage through these difficult times. And I have been contacted by business owners all over the state that are frustrated. And they're frustrated because they don't understand the color coding. They don't understand how they're supposed to stay in business. They're worried about their employees. They're worried about making payroll. They don't know how they're going to pay their rent. They don't know if their businesses will even be there tomorrow. The government didn't build our economy, despite what some of my opponents will say. Utahns, through their innovation, their hard work, and their dedication, built our economy. And when you close it unilaterally on everyone, look, I have 14 offices across the state of Utah. In some counties, I was required to close, and in others, I wasn't. But I made a responsible decision based on what I could do to contribute to not spreading the disease and taking care of my people. We don't need government compulsion. We need to allow personal responsibility in our society. We need to allow people to think for themselves and businesses to think for themselves. When government gets involved in anything, it usually ends up being a disaster. And what we need to do in the state of Utah is respect our personal liberties, our personal constitutional rights, and do the right thing, not because we're compelled by government to do it, but because we know what the right thing is to do, and we'll do it because we have personal responsibility, and we believe in doing the right thing.
2: I didn't hear any names, but does anyone feel need for rebuttal? I just want to make a
6: clarification, because I appreciate the answers here, but
2: when we say politicized, I
6: just want to define something, and I'm going to use an analogy very quickly. Uh, The president of the United States has a joint chief of staff. He has generals that went to school, training, ready to go to war. Uh, You would not leave the decision whether our country goes to war or not to generals alone. You have a public servant, a commander-in-chief that is a civilian elected by the people. This decision of how this state proceeds has to be looked at through the lens of public servants because a physician medical providers, they don't understand the bills. It's not their job to understand that bills come due every day. It's not their job to understand how this economy impacts the lives of people that bills come due every day and closing down our schools. And so you have to have public servants making these ultimate decisions. The buck stops with our public servants. Mr. Cox is asking for 30.
5: Yeah, thank you. So th- what has been said is absolutely right in one sense, and that is that the the, the politicization of this disease is awful. And the only people playing politics with the, this disease are the people on this stage. Look, in hindsight, uh, we understand it's easy to make those decisions. In the moment, it's incredibly difficult. And those decisions were being made and influenced at every level uh, by the experts here in the state of Utah. But most importantly, it's the people of Utah who sacrificed, who flattened the curve, in a way that we could be the first, one of the first states to reopen and lead the nation. By the way, in the fewest job losses, number one. To those who have lost their jobs, it's it's awful. It's heart wrenching. But the state of Utah is better off than any other state in the country, Let's and the people of Utah know that. to
2: Mr. Huntsman, and then thirty to Mr. Wright. The only people
3: politicizing this COVID-19 situation are here in this room. This is absurd. There has been absolutely no accountability taken for the $100 million transactions. Still no accountability. With leadership comes accountability. But I want to remind people where we've been for three months. We've been locked up in our homes where the only people able to campaign and politicize have been those in the governor's office. Using the platform, using it as a bully pulpit this is absolutely absurd while we sit under house arrest and try to do our best to run a campaign that's how this campaign has proceeded and i just think it's absurd to
4: say that people in this room have politicized it mr wright will give you the last word it's not fair to say that we politicized it from lieutenant governor somebody who's been running for governor for almost two years as a sitting elected official and using his office to run for public office and it's also not fair to politicize a situation when you're a business owner And the government is telling you what to do and you have the right to ask the government why they're doing it. We have the right to ask, where is the $6.6 million for the app we paid for, for an app that's still not working? We have the right as citizens, as business owners, to ask these questions of our elected officials, especially when they've been more than willing to campaign and putting themselves out there. So to say that we're politicizing it just really isn't fair, I think it's unfortunate, and this is why we see this unrest, okay. Bruce, because people are frustrated with their government and they don't trust their elected officials. Okay.
2: We'll, we'll be able to circle back to this. We partner with universities and colleges, the Utah Debate Commission does, uh, and students have submitted questions. Here's a political science student, Eric Montague, from the University of Utah.
5: Hello, my name is Eric Montague, and my question is for the Utah
2: gubernatorial candidates, and that question is, During COVID, we've had a lot of our civil rights infringed upon. Which ones were just and which infringements went too far? Let's ask whether there have been infringements of civil rights, and if so, what uh, COVID-19 control measures do you believe went too far, starting with Mr. Hughes?
6: Yes, our civil rights have been taken away from us. There's a statute that says that you can't take away someone's right to bear arms in a state of emergency, as governor i'm going to promote that the whole bill of rights be go ahead we can go ahead and include that in our in our uh, statutes that you cannot take away our constitutionally protected rights as i said you can't have your phone monitor where you're at without your permission and without your consent going off like an amber alert when you cross the state line asking you who you are where you're going and what your health status is we have the the P- play people of faith I, this there are churches that have reached out to me that have said the state closed their doors and did not allow them to assemble to worship and then when the state order did come just a couple weeks ago that allowed for churches to assemble and worship again it came with and I quote from the COVID-19 task force and Spencer Cox's tax, task force these are the non-negotiable stipulations in which you can enter the, the house your houses of worship and, and be there. I'm telling you, that isn't a role of government. It's not, it's not the place for government to decide this. This is land of the free, home of the brave. Let's move on to Mr. Husman, please. When you live in places like
3: Moscow and Beijing, you begin to really appreciate what civil liberties are. You know, one of the few things that differentiates us from every other country in the world. And I've seen people who have been told to do things, and they just do it without questioning why. Because that's what the state wants them to do. In this particular situation, I am not comfortable with a state that compels people at the border to fill out invasive questionnaires, like happened to my brother. That's what happens when you drive from Finland into Russia. And the questionnaire asks where you've been, where you're going, a little bit about information. You don't know where it's going, who's going to use it, how long it's going to be there. These are simple examples of a step-by-step level of infringement on our civil liberties that unless questioned, unless questioned about why we're all supposed to do this the following way, as opposed to tell us what we need to know and let us govern ourselves, that's
4: liberty. That's what we in the United States do. Thank you. Mr. Wright. I think this question is a perfect example of why we need to educate ourselves, our children, and our society as much as we can about the great Constitution of the United States of America. It's the oldest constitution in the world. It's the shortest. It's the most emulated and it stood the test of time. By understanding those rights, we can preserve those rights for future generations. A government that'll take your constitutional rights, rights that they're supposed to protect. Rights are not created by government. They're given to us by God. They're inalienable rights and government's job is to protect them. And when they take them, you can't trust government anymore. People will do the right thing. People want to do the right thing. We've seen Utahns repeatedly step up to the plate when asked to do so. In this particular case, the proper role of government was to disseminate the information, to help us understand the seriousness of COVID. And it is serious, and there's been major human devastation. And then allow people to make choices based on their freedoms and liberties. By understanding the Constitution, we can preserve it, and we deserve it. And so do the people that pay it a great price to not only write it, but preserve it for all of these many years. Mr. Cox.
5: Thank you. There's no question that preserving civil liberties is the, uh, is the most important thing that an elected official can do, especially in these difficult times. I'm very grateful for the decisions that were made by Governor Herbert, by legislative leadership uh, to enact the things that were necessary and only those things that were necessary to protect the health and safety of Utahns. Again, facts are stubborn things, but 45 states had more restrictions placed on them than, than we did here in the state of Utah. Utah. We're very proud of that response. Yes, there were some things we could have been done better. Now, these half-truths about compelling people as they cross the border, that ever happened. This was simply a voluntary form that it was Angela Dunn, by the way, who suggested these things could happen. Because we had such a low rate of infection in Utah, people from California were trying to escape the, uh, the, the, the issues and, and the restrictions being placed on them to come into our state and bringing the disease with them. And so we merely asked them voluntarily to let us know if they had any symptoms so that we could direct them to get testing so that we wouldn't inf- infect Utahns. This is what's really happening out there. Let's make sure we get our facts straight uh, before we, we misinform the people of the, the state. Gentlemen,
2: before, is there a, an urgent need to rebut? Well, yeah, the 15 facts are second, straight. 15 seconds, please.
6: Facts are very straight. A government, a, a stated order from our governor has inherently a Class B misdemeanor if you violate it. There was nothing in that order that said this was voluntary. You can have the governor come out after the fact and say, well, I won't it, but let's be clear. It was a, it was an executive order to, to monitor and use our phones as surveillance devices, and just because the governor tells you that he won't enforce that Class B misdemeanor, it is still in effect until he decides it's not. There was a hand from Mr. Hussman. Yep.
3: Yep. Facts are stubborn things. We're sitting at 10% unemployment. The highest in recorded history. And people had to shut down. Look at the restaurant and hospitality sector. One of the great Sectors in our state, over 100,000 people they employ. They have been hit hard because their markets have dried up. They have not been able to engage in the marketplace because things have closed, and we have not let them and counties and local officials, if you look at that separation of powers, make decisions that I think should be theirs.
2: Mr. Wright, give
4: you there's a pattern of behavior going on here. And that's why we need to elect somebody that has not held public office. My three opponents have been in office for over 16 years. This isn't the only challenge that we've had. Just recently, we learned that facial recognition software was being applied to DMV records, and nobody seemed to know about it. That had nothing to do with the pandemic. This is a pattern of behavior where government isn't watching our back. They are not preserving our individual liberties. And if we keep electing the same people, we're going to continue to get the same result. That's why I wanted to step in as an outsider and get inside this insider's game. Okay, Mr. Cox, the last few seconds on this topic.
5: Well, look, again, the people of the state of Utah have just been incredible during this pandemic. And we forget this is a global pandemic. It's a novel coronavirus because we knew virtually nothing about it. We didn't have testing because the federal government failed us in those respects. Again, Utah responded better. Yes, we have unemployment at 9.7 percent, and it is absolutely devastating. It's also the sixth lowest in the nation. This is a global pandemic. It's impacting everyone. We have lost lives and we're going to lose more. We have to balance. This is not a choice between the economy and help. We can do those things together. We've done it better in Utah, according to the president, according to Dr. Fauci, according to Harvard, and according to Forbes, as well or better than any other state in this nation.
2: We're going to move on, gentlemen. If you want to circle back, we'll try that. Until COVID-19 came along, the uh, hot issue in Utah surrounded growth. The rapid growth and the state's supply of housing compared with demand is uh, lower than it's ever been. Economists at the University of Utah say we have a shortage of 54,000 affordable housing units in the state and that our market will look like San Francisco's in 20 years if we don't figure out how to deal with this. What will you do to bring together government and developers and builders and lenders and other stakeholders and citizens to figure out uh, – the change is required for our children, our grandchildren to have affordable places to live. It would be Mr. Huntsman. Just as we
3: close out the COVID conversation,
2: let me just close by saying that
3: this is this is a health issue, to be sure. But it's an economic issue and it's a mental health issue. Two suicides a day, 12 attempts. How much is attributable to people who are feeling a sense of despair because they have nowhere to turn? They have no job left. So let's be sure that we put this in proper perspective on growth. I think the numbers that we're looking at, which is to say doubling the state's population by 2050, I think those numbers are low. I think because of the dysfunction of states and cities, even in our neighborhood, uh, and because of the lack of trust that COVID-19 has brought about to local and state governments, I think people are going to be looking for a safe haven. And if elected governor, again, I want to make this state a safe haven for investment, for innovation, for entrepreneurship, and for people to come. And we're going to need affordable housing. It's important not just for young people getting started, but it's important in the whole homelessness discussion as well. And we have a shortage of 45,000. There's no doubt about that. But what is it that we do to overcome that? Well, we've got to work with the private sector. We've got to make sure that we understand and recognize the market signals that we're getting. But sometimes the market signals are maybe going to be uh, uh, a little different than what we would like. We need to align economic development priorities with where people live. So why is it we have 100,000 people coming out of Davis and Weber counties who are working in Salt Lake and Utah counties? Let's do a better job aligning our jobs with where housing is affordable. And let's also do what we can to encourage homeownership because a lot of young folks today are renting and they're doing it because they're in fear of what their future might hold. The best thing we can do for stability in our communities is, is to encourage ownership. And I think there are ways to do that in partnership with the private sector and also by better utilizing our land.
2: Thank you. Your approach to affordable housing, Mr.
4: Ryan. The affordable housing crisis is a very serious situation in the state of Utah because you're not just talking about housing, you're talking about the ramifications of children not being in stable households. There's all kinds of mental health implications. We're number one in teenage suicide in this country. I'm very uncomfortable with that in the state of Utah. Those are not our values. The affordable housing crisis is happening for two main reasons. Number one, there's a not in my backyard mentality that we need to educate and encourage people to overcome. If nobody wants to build affordable housing in their community, we won't have any. We can overcome that by being innovative. And I'm going to talk about specifics in just a minute. Number two, the second second problem is the zoning ordinances. When you have cities that have very strict zoning ordinances, it's hard for developers to develop the kind of product that we need in the market. State government should never tell cities and municipalities what to do. As governor, I would never advocate for that. But when you have these two problems, not in my backyard and these zoning ordinances that are prohibitive, you get urban sprawl. Because the only thing you can control when you're developing housing is the cost of land. And the cheapest land is always on the perimeter of a metropolitan area. So we're gonna create urban sprawl by not tackling the affordable housing crisis. So let me give you a specific idea, Bruce, of something we can do to solve the problem. We built big box retailers for many years in our country. This was before Amazon. The parking lots were probably already too big, even back then. Now, post-pandemic, post-Amazon, they're even bigger than they need to be. Cities could look at those and say, these are on main arteries. These are close to where people are working. Let's give a zoning variance for the owner of that land to build some affordable housing. That's right where it needs to be. It will reduce congestion. It will make the quality of life go up. We need to think about this in an innovative way, but my three opponents have had their chance. They've held the highest three offices in the land, and we have 54,000 housing units that were short. It's time for a new leader that understands the problem and will work collaboratively with local cities to
5: make it happen. Mr. Cox, Affordable Housing. Thanks, Bruce. You know, growing up on the farm, my dad always said that, uh, that, that our greatest crop were our kids, but it was also our, our best export. And, and we sent them away and we, we never got them back. Um, rural Utah is another discussion uh, for another question, hopefully. But urban Utah is starting to feel that now because of the price of housing. So many people are worried on the Wasatch Front that their children won't have the opportunity to live and raise their kids where, where they grew up. And that's something that, that Deeply concerns me. Now, it's not the role of the governor to make decisions for local municipalities. I was a former city councilman and a former mayor, and I understand that the best decisions are made at the local level. But there are a couple important things that we can do. First and foremost, I say this often, but where there's a little formula that always works, where where infrastructure precedes growth and density, the quality of life stays high. Where growth and density precede infrastructure, the quality of life goes down. The reason we have this not in my backyard mentality is often because we don't have the infrastructure for the growth that is proposed. The state can help with that infrastructure. A couple other areas where we are working closely right now with the private sector on real innovation. Three areas. First and foremost, we need innovation in construction to lower the cost of construction. And there's some great things happening out there in the marketplace. Second of all, we need innovation around finance. Um, we, We haven't seen much innovation. We did in the early 2000s, but it was all the wrong kind and led to an economic collapse. That's not the type of innovation we need, but real innovation around finance to open up markets and open up housing for low-income people and, and those that are just getting started in their lives. And finally, government regulation is the third area where we need innovation because it does, government regulation does increase the cost of housing. We've seen some municipalities like Spanish Fork and others who have, who have had deregulation around mother-in-law apartments, which adds, which adds Add supply and and makes it possible for homeowners now to make a little extra and 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 provide space for those that are moving in
2: thank you mr. Hughes
6: so the growth issue is absolutely a challenge we're one of that we have one of the highest birth rates in the nation uh, unless we're turning into China and limiting our uh, our growth or our, ch- our children uh, to one h- child per household we will continue to grow what we can't do is grow the way we've grown up until now we had over 3 million people in this state And 80% of Utah's population lives in four counties and a 130-mile-long valley. We cannot sprawl. There's mountains that are surrounding us. It is not a sustainable plan to think that if we're going to double in population by 2050, that over 80% of 6.5 million people could somehow fit in these four counties of the Wasatch Front, Utah County, Salt Lake County, Davis, and Weber. It means that the rest of this state, RURAL COUNTIES, AT LEAST 22 COUNTIES, HAVE NEVER SEEN A DAY OF ECONOMIC OPPORTUNITY. WE WANT TO DEAL WITH THE GROWTH. WE NEED PLACES FOR OUR CHILDREN THAT LIVE ALONG THE WASATCH FRONT IF THEY CAN'T AFFORD uh, HOUSING BECAUSE OF THE scarcity OF HOUSING. MORE DEMAND THAN THERE IS SUPPLY. THEY HAVE PLACES IN UTAH THAT THEY COULD GO AND MAKE THEIR LIFE and, AND MAKE THEIR WAY. If we if we want to see that the, those that are living in those communities that have been migrating here because they don't have jobs or they don't have an opportunity to make a life wherever in our state they live, we've seen that migration happen along the Wasatch Front as well. The way we do this is we have to see we grow the economic pie. It's another discussion, but it does talk about the growth and the housing. The cost of living will be much more affordable and practical for people as they have economic opportunities throughout this whole state. We got 29 states in this and Utah. We don't have to keep shoehorning everything in. To just four, uh, we need that relief valve and I think the people have pushed back uh, considerably uh, in terms of, in the Wasatch Front expressing their frustration and at the same time people in rural Utah are expressing their frustration that they haven't seen the same infrastructure uh, investment so that they can grow their
2: economies thank you let's take another question from a student at one of our partner universities Elise Hall is majoring in political science at BYU
8: Utah is currently ranked 50 out of 50 for education spending per student, is ranked 22 out of 50 for K through 12 education nationally, and has a 34 to 1 average student to teacher ratio. What specific measures do you plan to implement to improve education for Utah's children if elected?
2: Mr. Wright, specific measures to improve education.
4: This is the best part of the debate commission is students asking amazing questions like this and getting answers from candidates. So great question, Elise. Look, education has to be our top priority. We've got to focus on coming out of the pandemic and economic recovery for certain. But public education has been an ongoing challenge. I don't think we're 50th. I think we're 51st, which I didn't even know was possible until it came out. I wonder how much further we can fall before we finally step up to the plate and take this seriously, which is one of the reasons I'm running. My three opponents, again, have held the highest offices in this land, and we continually underperform when it comes to education funding and classroom size and some of the other challenges that we see you as governor, I'm going to be the public education governor. We don't need more taxes. We don't need more revenue. We need to reallocate the resources in our public education budget to make sure that they get into the classroom so that teachers are supported, so that they have the resources in the classroom so they can educate our children. It's been far too long that we've had a teacher shortage and our teachers have been underpaid. We need to make it happen by getting out of the teacher's way in the classroom and letting them teach without Common Core and all the bureaucracy
5: that comes down from the FEDERAL GOVERNMENT. You. MR. COX. Thank you. Uh, this is the challenge of, of our lifetimes: education. We can get uh, everything else we've talked about tonight right, and if we don't get education right, none of it will matter because we will fail as a state. Conversely, we can get every decision wrong, and if we get education right, we will be okay. As I've talked to teachers, and this this teacher shortage is is something we don't talk nearly enough about here in the state of Utah. But I found there are two things. One, of course, is compensation. I have a brother who was the uh, the, the teacher of the year in the six county region he's no longer teaching because we don't pay our teachers enough but there's something even more insidious that's happening out there uh, something that is driving teachers away and that is that we have taken the joy of teaching out of the classroom we have done that by over regulating the entrepreneurs of the classroom you can see it with high stakes testing you can see it with school grading things that aren't making our kids any smarter at all and driving teachers away when I hear teachers say to their own children WHATEVER YOU DO, DON'T BECOME A TEACHER, THAT'S WHEN WE HAVE A PROBLEM, AND WE WILL SOLVE IT. MR. HUGHES.
6: YOU KNOW, WHEN I WAS SPEAKER, WE PUT OVER A BILLION DOLLARS OF NEW EDUCATION FUNDING IN OUR BUDGET, AND WE DID IT THE CONSERVATIVE WAY we cut taxes. In my time as a lawmaker, we saw reform that cut our income tax to a flatter 5% tax. When we cut the tax, state tax off of food, and we put, it was a $400 million tax cut back then. When you don't collect $400 million and you leave $400 million in this economy, what happens? We see as supply-siders, we saw revenues rise, economic prosperity happen. we saw the revenue come in. But let me just tell you real quickly, if any candidate on the stage is going to tell you that we're walking into a year where we're going to increase funding, you're not you're being sold ice cream, you're not being told the truth. Here's my fear. If you don't have commerce occurring, you don't have tax collection. If we don't get back to work and we don't see people making a living, you're not going to have the dollars that are being collected uh, for our income tax, which is dedicated to our public schools. We're going to see massive shortfalls. If we take federal funds because we can't pay the bills, that's how you get Common Core, and that's how you get some of these federal mandates that in the long run hurt our education system.
2: Mr. Hussman,
3: this is all small ball. One of the biggest risks we face going forward is thinking small. So when was the last time the state had a big idea? Probably a very long time. So if we're going to do something special for our kids and for our families and for our future, because I've seen how the Chinese are educating their kids are doing a pretty darn good job of it. The only way forward is to double our state's GDP. We can talk, talk, talk about everything else. We have to earn our way there, as I found out as governor before. I have a plan to take our GDP from $180 billion to $500 billion. And it's based around three industries that are $100 billion each in terms of what they can do. Biotechnology, finance, and defense. We can make it happen, but we can also make it happen through public lands. The federal government owns far too much and more of what we should get should be dedicated to education like so many of the states in our neighborhood
2: have been able to do. Gentlemen, we're up against the clock, and so I'm going to ask you to give me a 15-minute question, uh, 15-second answer (laughs) to a very brief question, because your environmental policies are going to be informed by what you believe about the environment. So my simple question is, do you believe in human-caused climate change, and yes or no, and why? We would be with Mr. Cox.
5: Uh, so, so the answer is yes, but but I have to clarify that. That doesn't mean economic de- devastation. Uh, what we've shown here in the state of Utah is that we can do both. We're cleaning up our air at rates that we have never done before. It's a bipartisan issue. The Clean Air Caucus in the legislature is helping us. We're getting it done. Okay, Mr. Hughes, it's up or more down? more than
6: yes or no, but no. It, to suggest that this, this planet, has only, its climate has only changed because of man would be incorrect. Are, should we be good stewards of the environment? Of course we should be, and we are. But man is not the reason why the planet Earth has ever changed its climate.
3: Okay, Mr. Huntsman. I follow science, and the evidence out there would suggest that, yes, that is the case. So it isn't a question of, is it or isn't it? It's, what are we going to do about it? And I think we have to remember we're all downstream, and unless we have other people who are willing to step and do something about it as well, we're going to have a problem.
4: Mr. Wright. This is the problem with running for public office for outsiders, is it can be both yes, the climate changes over time. Of course it does. We've seen that. We've studied history. We know that. But we also know that humans emit and we have carbon footprints and we contribute and we should do everything we can to preserve this incredible planet that we have. And even if it only makes a minuscule bit of difference, I want to do my part as a responsible citizen.
2: Okay, the clock says we're up for closing statements prior to air. It was determined and agreed that the candidates would deliver one minute closing statements in this order. Thomas Wright, Spencer Cox, Greg Hughes and John Huntsman. So,
4: Mr right a close friend of mine told me before i got into this race that running for office is an insider's game and he said thomas you're an outsider and they don't like outsiders in their arena unless it's with their permission i've learned that the hard way but i'm in this race and i'm in it to win it i'm getting an incredible amount of phone calls from everyday citizens that are fed up with government because they think government isn't looking for out for them anymore they think government's looking out for each other And not only that, we're getting a record amount of investing going on in our campaign. We've raised more money this month than any other campaign. And I want people to know Thomas Wright can win this race. Don't fall for the polling. The polling is an insider's game. The polling will lead you to believe that public opinion is already set. And if we believed that, Hillary Clinton would be president and Aaron Mendenhall would not be mayor of Salt Lake City and so many other races that we've seen. I'm in this race to win it, but outsiders can only win when other outsiders see the wisdom in turning government over. I'm Thomas Wright. I'm running for governor,
5: and I'm sincerely asking for your vote in this primary election. Mr. Cox. So yesterday, my dad pulled me aside and he said, are you sure you really want to do this? We're looking at a global pandemic. Um, one of the worst economies in the history of our state. Uh, we threw an earthquake in there for good measure. And uh, of course, we've seen racial unrest and the riots in our, in our capital city the last couple days. My answer to him was very simple. I'm doing this because I love this state. I care deeply about the people that live here. I believe we're unique. I believe we're special. I believe that we are a light to the nation. I'm running because the 2010s were the most prosperous decade in our state's history. And I'm running because the 2020s can be even better. Look, my friends, fellow Utahns, politics in this country is broken, but it's not broken here in Utah. We can reject negative campaigning. We can work together. We can bring together the voices of those who feel like they're not being heard. As your governor, I will get in the trenches with you and get my hands dirty. We will work side by side. We will shine the light on you and shine that light for the nation. I'm Spencer Cox, and I ask for your vote. Mr. Hughes, one minute, please.
6: Thank you. Let me go back to my opening statement. I'm the conservative candidate for governor with a proven track record. Uh, Look, we have people in this state that would like to see this state turn purple, turn blue. Uh, They're registering as Republicans at record uh, rates, and they're saying anyone but Hughes. That should tell you something about the, the course we have forward. I'm not afraid to say that I support our president, President Trump. I have seen firsthand as a public servant what he's done for this state specifically uh, that he'll probably never get the credit for or people will never be able to won't know the extent that he watches. And he does lead as president uh, and impact the lives for the good for the average Joe, the average Jane in our in our state. I'm asking for your support. I'm asking for your vote. We are surging. You're watching polls, and you'll see polls that show that we are the only ones in double digits uh, going up in the polls and earning your support. I ask you to give us a serious look. Put us to the test. Hughes and Iverson, uh, we, we will uh, do all we can to earn your support, and we would appreciate and be honored to have it.
2: Thank you. Mr. Huntsman.
3: Uh, I want to give a shout out to Michelle Cofusi, who's the great mayor of Provo for taking this journey with me as the greatest running mate anybody could ask for. People ask all the time why I'm doing this again. I don't need a title. I don't need a portrait hanging on the wall in the Capitol. I've got those. I'm standing here tonight because I love this state. This is my home and this is your home. I'm running because I think this state has a destiny, a destiny to become the crossroads of the world, and I believe I can get us there. Now, in a few days, votes will be cast. Then all the political noise will be over, all of the politicking. Then this whole thing will be about one thing, leadership. If now isn't the time for experienced leaders with a track record of bringing people together and getting real economic results, I don't know when is. I humbly ask for your vote.
2: May God bless the great state of Utah. My thanks to all of the candidates for being here this evening, and particularly thanks to the many Utah broadcast stations that brought you this debate as a public service, and our sponsors, the Larry H. and Gail Miller Family Foundation and doTERRA International. Also, a special appreciation to the administration, faculty, and students at the University of Utah and PBS Utah for providing this venue. I'm Bruce Lindsay, thanking you for watching and wishing you a good evening.
9: You've been watching the Utah Debate Commission debate, uh, gubernatorial debate. Uh, I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor of the Deseret News, and uh, we are going to break this down for the next hour. A special episode here on KSL News Radio. We'll go through each of the d- debates that took place today. Uh, not only this uh, one you just listened to here on KSL News Radio for the governorship, uh, we also had uh, congressional debates take place today as well. So, special hour of coverage coming up starting at 7.05 here on KSL News Radio. Uh, Also, we're continuing to monitor here at KSL News Radio uh, all the events uh, happening here in the state of Utah and around the country, Uh, the unrest that continues uh, around the country, and uh, we'll continue to monitor that here as well. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside. We'll get a quick uh, commercial break in, top of the hour news. When we come back, we'll begin to break down how the debate went. Uh, We'll get your opinion, and we'll get some thoughts from each of the campaigns for governor right here on KSL News Radio.
2: Voice your vote 2020, the Republican governor debate. For the next
9: hour, we have special coverage reviewing tonight's primary debate. Here's the host of Inside Sources, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM at 1160 AM. Welcome, everyone, to this special coverage Your Voice, Your Vote. We we're breaking down all of the debates from the day today. In particular, you just listened to the gubernatorial debate. Uh, Between the current Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, former Speaker of the House Greg Hughes, former Governor and uh, Ambassador to uh, Russia and China John Huntsman, and former uh, Director and Head of the uh, State GOP Thomas Wright, also a business uh, developer and uh, real estate person. And as we looked at the uh, debate, again, 60 Minutes goes so fast, as uh, we know, every day. It goes uh, quickly on inside sources, and so uh, a lot of ground to cover and I want to tee things up before we get into the substance of the debate. Uh, a lot of people ask me, well, what, should I, what should I be listening for in a debate? What is it that I should really be trying to key into to make a decision between each of the candidates uh, running for governor? And as we look at this and the primary coming up here on June 30th, uh, really down the home stretch, uh, ballots will start uh, being mailed out on the 9th and uh, the game will be on for sure. And so there's a couple of things that I want to do as a, as a tee-up in terms of how you listen to what we talk about over the course of the next hour. Uh, I always say that the first thing you should listen to in a debate is when you listen to a candidate, what does their answer make you think of? Does it make you think just about them or does it make you think about you, your life, your family, your community, your job, your future? Uh, and it's interesting to see how different candidates are able to do that. Whether everything is just very self-focused and I will do this and this is my plan and this is what I'm going to do, uh, or does it really help you see and envision how your life will be different or better if they were to lead? So that's the first question I think everyone should always be thinking about. Uh, Second, I get really tired of politicians across the political spectrum whose only vision is a vision of themselves in office, Uh, and that's always something to look for and listen for is what do I sense? Do I I feel like they really have a vision for the state and for the people of this, or is this just a vision of office uh, and being in political power? So that's a good question for you to to be thinking about as you listen to the analysis here as we go through the next hour. Uh, One of my favorite questions, and we'll come back to this at the end of the show, and the question is, before you cast a vote for someone, what's the last thing you should think about? And my answer to that is, The last thing you should think about before casting a vote for any person in any office is how would this person make a difference and add value to my community, to my state, if they lose? Now, that may seem like an odd question, but it's the real question, because if you can't envision them making a difference and contributing and being a value-added member of the society outside of office – then they probably shouldn't be in office. In other words, if the only thing that allows them to make a difference is being in power, that means every decision they make while in office will be about maintaining and holding on to that power. And so asking yourself, how would this person make a difference if they weren't in office is a good question. Those are just a few that I think everybody should be thinking about rolling into this whole thing. Uh, I think it was a a strong uh, debate, a really interesting performance uh, from each of the candidates And again, this is all moving towards the Republican primary. They will take on uh, the Democrat in the fall. And I want to break down, uh, starting with their opening statements, because the opening question was really about a question of leadership. And what was it that made them different as a leader? So we're going to go through each of these answers uh, from the candidates. Uh, Let's start uh, with the opening, which was uh, former Governor John Huntsman.
3: One word, leadership two words, experienced leadership. I've been in the saddle before as governor. I've brought people together. I've helped to build this economy. I'm standing here because I know what we have been through most recently has caused anxiety and a lot of despair on the part of people. I know it's a confused world. I see opportunity for our state in that confusion. But I'm here also because I believe in conservative libertarian philosophies that I think should guide our future, Bruce. And I'm standing here because I believe we have an historic opportunity not just to recover from pandemics, riots, and uncertain times, but to be reborn. Reborn is the crossroads of the world. I will sell for nothing less.
9: So again, that was uh, former Governor John Huntsman, uh, very focused on his theme of Utah being the crossroads, not just to the West, but crossroads to the world. Uh, About going big was a a big theme for him throughout the night tonight. Uh, Next, let's go to uh, Thomas Wright, former uh, GOP party chair. And uh, let's hear what he had to say in his opening statement in terms of why he was different than the other candidates.
4: I believe that we need to listen to each other in society far more than we are right now. We have a variety of differences. We come from different backgrounds. And I believe that people that come from different temperaments, talents, and convictions are superior to those who are similar. As governor, I want to sit down and I want to listen. And we want to understand each other. We must first learn to listen. I have consistently done that in my life. I've done that in my business. And I will do that as governor by bringing people together together. By listening, by having, the difficult, by having difficult conversations, talking about difficult things, the things that divide us right now. We are a strong people, but we have healing to do. We need to get together. We need to talk things out and come up with a plan by listening to each other's perspectives. And as governor, I'll do that. So
9: again, that's uh, former GOP chair Thomas Wright, his opening statement, and really throughout the night, uh, Thomas Wright really tried to play in this space of being the outsider, that it was going to take someone. uh I pointed out that uh, the other three uh, candidates on the stage have all held very high office, a governor, a lieutenant governor, and the Speaker of the House, really the three uh, top posts in the state. So it was very interesting that Thomas Wright uh, chose to focus on that and his Uh, experience in the business space and not being on the political inside uh, was a big part of of his theme tonight, played out in some interesting ways that we'll talk about uh, as we move through the program. And then let's move uh, to the former Speaker of the House, uh, Greg Hughes, and his opening statement.
6: I am the proven conservative in this race, proud to say it, with a track record. Look at what's happening right now. We're seeing some brazen behavior on all fronts and in many ways. These are strange and challenging times that we're in. I will tell you this. We have a movement right now with the Democrats that are saying it very clearly that they would like to change their registration, not because they are converting to our party to become Republicans. They've read the platform and they want to be a a Republican. They're doing it to influence the outcome of our party's uh, nominee. What I know about what's happening, if you don't believe me, just look at the news, uh, news reports. We have, uh, we have interviews going on that say anyone but Hughes. You've got Jim Debacus, who was the chair of the Repu- Democrat Re- Utah Party, who's a Republican, registered Republican today. We brought people together when on Operation Rio Grande. We fought lawlessness. We took on things people said they couldn't, but we did it as a conservative and through with cons- conservative principles.
9: All right. So, again, that's uh, former Speaker Greg Hughes, his opening statement. Uh, interesting. He, he did take on uh, the challenge of those that are registering as Republicans, even Democrats. He mentioned uh, Jim DeBacchus, uh as one who has changed from uh, his registration from a Democrat to a Republican. So he can vote uh, in this June primary. Uh, also interesting throughout the night, uh, Speaker Hughes uh, Focus a lot on his connection to President Trump uh, and his uh, con- uh, conservative credentials there, and some of his work uh, in the state uh, office there as well. Uh, so, really fascinating where each of these candidates chose to go in their opening statements. Uh, and then things really started to get uh, moving as they move forward and and start talking about things like the coronavirus, about the unrest, uh, what those balance are, and we're going to continue to break those down as we go through this hour here, all the way till eight o'clock tonight, breaking down the uh, Republican gubernatorial uh, debate tonight. And uh, we're going to be joined a little later on at uh, seven thirty-five. We'll be joined by uh, several people from the each from the different campaigns. Uh, so we'll have. Uh, Current uh, Representative Rob Bishop, who's the LG candidate with Thomas Wright, will join us. Uh, Deidre Henderson, uh, who is the running mate uh, to Spencer Cox. And then we'll have representatives from both the Huntsman campaign. Marty Carpenter will join us. Uh, And then Victor Iverson, the uh, lieutenant governor candidate uh, with Greg Hughes, will also join us. So we'll get their perspective in terms of what their candidate was doing tonight what message they were really on and trying to get across and uh, how everyone did so we'll do that coming up at 7:35 you don't want to miss that tonight as well. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside. When we come back we'll continue to break down some specifics including some heated moments as it relates to the politics of the pandemic. Stay with us right here on KSL News Radio. Special coverage, your voice, your vote, 2020, the Republican Governor Debate on KSL News radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone. Special coverage tonight. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News and host of KSL's Inside Sources. It is great to be with you tonight. If you uh, happen to miss any of the debate, uh, worth going back and listening to that and reviewing uh, how each of the candidates did, where they went and why. As we were talking before the break, uh, I think one of the most interesting exchanges of the hour uh, for the debate commission tonight was the exchange around the pandemic and Utah's response to that. What happened? What went right? What went wrong? What could have been done better? Uh, And it was really the the major point of disagreement uh, in terms of uh, everyone's answers. So there were uh, obviously some things back and forth. And so let's start with uh, Thomas Wright, uh, who talked about how... The pandemic had been politicized here in the state of utah
4: it's not fair to say that we politicized it from lieutenant governor somebody who's been running for governor for almost two years as a sitting elected official and using his office to run for public office and it's also not fair to politicize a situation when you're a business owner and the government is telling you what to do and you have the right to ask the government why they're doing it we have the right to ask where is the 6.6 million dollars for the app we paid for for an app that's still not working we have the right as citizens as business owners to ask these questions of our elected officials especially when they've been more than willing to campaign and put themselves out there so to say that we're politicizing it just really isn't fair i think it's unfortunate and this is why we see this unrest okay. bruce because people are frustrated with their government and they don't trust their elected officials
9: okay. uh, so that was a, a big point of contention there uh, what was being politicized and who was politicizing it? Was it uh, the governor's office? Was it the governor appointing the Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox uh, to head that uh, pandemic relief and the coronavirus response? Uh, Was it the other candidates who were politicizing what was going on there? So that was Thomas Wright in uh, his comment in terms of the uh, politicization of the pandemic and what took place there. Uh, Here's uh, Spencer Cox, uh, his evaluation in terms of how The uh, leadership has
5: gone during the pandemic. The last two and a half months have been some of the most challenging in our state's history. We've called upon local leaders uh, across the state at, at every level of government, uh, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, the faith-based sector. We have all worked together on this response. I'm very proud of the people who have been working together and made those decisions in that response. Certainly, in hindsight, there are, there are some things that, that we could have done differently. But by and large, we have had a tremendous response to, uh, to this, this coronavirus. Crisis, and I think it's important to point out the facts and some of those uh, those important numbers. Uh, we were one of only seven states that didn't have a statewide shutdown. We a uh, recent study came out that showed that there were 45 states who had uh, who had more more serious restrictions on the economy and on the the liberties of people than the state of Utah. We were in the bottom five in that category. Um, you've heard a lot about Dr. Fauci and President Trump disagreeing on things. Uh, one of the things they both agree on and have said publicly is that the state of Utah has done a tremendous job in managing this response. Again, not just economically, but from a health standpoint as well, to have one of the lowest hospitalization rates in the country, to have one of the uh, lowest mortality rates in the country. People have sacrificed and it has worked. And so a- as a state, this is what we, we do best in times of trial. We come together and seeing what we have seen, it, again, during the worst pandemic the, the, one of the worst crises in, in, in our lifetimes, for sure. We've seen Utahns come together to lift each other up. We have sewn 5 million masks as Utahns for our frontline workers. That kind of stuff doesn't happen anywhere else. Just today, our farmers are taking more sheep um, and, and food down to the residents of, of uh, San Juan County, those who, of our tribal nations who are struggling right now. That's the best of Utah, and this pandemic has brought out the best in Utah.
9: All right, so that's uh, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, uh, who is also the head of the Coronavirus Task Force. Uh, so he was uh, defending uh, their work, what they had done, what had gone right uh, in terms of this. Uh, he was challenged uh, by each of the, the other candidates in terms of some of the uh, no-bid contracts, some of the other things that went on. Uh, but I want to shift gears a little bit now uh, because I want to get to the forward-moving pieces of the puzzle. Because to me, that's really the the test of this race And really one of the important questions, I think, for each of us as voters to consider is what does that future look like? Uh, I think Utah is uniquely positioned in so many ways. And so the leadership matters. Uh, And whether it's education, whether it's economic development, whether it's upward mobility and opportunity, all of those things are dependent on some really good, solid leadership. So we're going to break that down just a little bit. Uh, I want to start with... uh, former Governor John Huntsman's comment about housing uh, and development.
3: Just as we close out the COVID conversation, let me just close by saying that this is a health issue to be sure, but it's an economic issue and it's a mental health issue. Two suicides a day, 12 attempts. How much is attributable to people who are feeling a sense of despair because they have nowhere to turn? They have no job left. So let's be sure that we put this in proper perspective on growth. I think the numbers that we're looking at, which is to say doubling the state's population by 2050, I think those numbers are low. I think because of the dysfunction of states and cities, even in our neighborhood, uh, and because of the lack of trust that COVID-19 has brought about to local and state governments, I think people are going to be looking for a safe haven. And if elected governor again, again, I want to make this state a safe haven for investment, for innovation, for entrepreneurship, and for people to come. And we're going to need affordable housing. It's important not just for young people getting started, but it's important in the whole homelessness discussion as well. And we have a shortage of 45,000. There's no doubt about that. But what is it that we do to overcome that? Well, we've got to work with the private sector. We've got to make sure that we understand and recognize the market signals that we're getting. But sometimes the market signals are maybe going to be uh, uh, a little different than what we would like. We need to align economic development priorities with where people live. So why is it we have 100,000 people coming out of Davis and Weber counties who are working in Salt Lake and Utah counties? Let's do a better job aligning our jobs with where housing is affordable. And let's also do what we can to encourage homeownership because a lot of young folks today are renting and they're doing it because they're in fear of what their future might hold. The best thing we can do for stability in our communities is, is to encourage ownership. And I think there are ways to do that in partnership with the private sector and also by better utilizing our land.
9: All right, that's former Governor John Huntsman talking about the economic plan, about housing and development there. Uh, Let's go ahead and let's sneak in one more on housing. Let's uh, let's go to uh, Thomas Wright, uh, also on housing and economic development.
4: About housing, you're talking about the ramifications of children not being in stable households. There's all kinds of mental health implications. We're number one in teenage suicide in this country. I'm very uncomfortable with that in the state of Utah. Those are not our values. The affordable housing crisis is happening for two main reasons. Number one, there's a not in my backyard mentality that we need to educate and encourage people to overcome. If nobody wants to build affordable housing in their community, we won't have any. We can overcome that by being innovative. And I'm gonna talk about specifics in just a minute. Number two, the the second problem is the zoning ordinances. When you have cities that have very strict zoning ordinances, it's hard for developers to develop the kind of product that we need in the market. State government should never tell cities and municipalities what to do. As governor, I would never advocate for that. But when you have these two problems, not in my backyard and these zoning ordinances that are prohibitive, you get urban sprawl. Because the only thing you can control when you're developing housing is the cost of land. And the cheapest land is always on the perimeter of a metropolitan area. So we're gonna create urban sprawl by not tackling the affordable housing crisis. So let me give you a specific idea, Bruce, of something we can do to solve the problem. We built big box retailers for many years in our country. This was before Amazon. The parking lots were probably already too big, even back then. Now, post-pandemic, post-Amazon, they're even bigger than they need to be. Cities could look at those and say, These are on main arteries. These are close to where people are working. Let's give a zoning variance for the owner of that land to build some affordable housing. That's right where it needs to be. It will reduce congestion. It will make the quality of life go up. We need to think about this in an innovative way. But my three opponents have had their chance. They've held the highest three offices in the land, and we have 54,000 housing units that were short. It's time for a new leader that understands the problem and will work collaboratively with local cities. to make it
9: happen. All right. Again, that's uh, Thomas Wright. So much, much more to come tonight. Uh, we'll hear more from uh, former Speaker Greg Hughes, get some of his take uh, in the second half of the debate. We'll also hear more from the Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. And uh, coming up here at 735, you want to hang around uh, because we're going to hear from each of the campaigns. Uh, they've each designated one representative. So we'll hear from uh, current Congressman Rob Bishop, uh, who is uh, tag teaming with the uh, Thomas Wright. Uh, we'll also hear from uh, Deidre Henderson, uh, who is the Lieutenant Governor running mate to uh, Spencer Cox. Uh, I believe we have Victor Iverson joining us here uh, shortly as well. And then uh, Marty Carpenter from the Huntsman Campaign will also join us. So stay with us. We're going to step aside for bottom of the hour news. When we come back, much more of our breakdown of the gubernatorial debate right here on KSL News Radio.
2: your vote 2020 the republican governor debate for the next hour we have special
9: coverage reviewing tonight's primary debate here's the host of inside sources boyd Metherson, on ksl news radio 102.7 fm and 1160 a.m welcome back everyone we continue to break down the utah gubernatorial debate tonight uh, from the debate commission And for the next segment of the program, we're going to actually have each of the campaigns are going to join us uh, for a quick comment, a quick look at how their candidate did uh, in the big debate tonight. We're also continuing to watch very important uh, coming up eight o'clock as the uh, curfew uh, is set. Uh, Police are set to enforce that curfew coming up at 8 p.m. There is a growing crowd uh, out there in downtown Salt Lake City. So we'll continue to monitor that here on KSL News Radio. And uh, we're very pleased right now to be joined by Victor Iverson. Victor is the running mate uh, to Speaker Greg Hughes, former Speaker of the House. And, uh, Victor, great to have
11: you on. Good evening, boy. It's good to be on the show. And thank you for everything you're doing. And also thank you for your listeners, for uh- paying attention to this important race that we have going on in Utah.
9: Very important race. Uh, we got just about three minutes for each of the campaigns in this segment. So, uh, Victor, tell us, uh, one, what was the, the goal going into tonight? What was the key message for former Speaker Hughes, and how do you think he did tonight?
11: Well, I, you know, Greg is the real deal. He's a, he's a bold, conservative leader who can get things done. And that's really what we need as as Utah faces this critical time. I thought the debate was a fabulous discussion about freedom, about Constitution, and about some of the mistakes that have been made in this COVID uh, pandemic, Uh, the the politicalization that's been happening. I felt like um, Speaker Hughes did a great job um, speaking out on those issues, speaking out on freedom, on the Constitution, how it cannot be suspended um, for public health policy. And I have to admit that I was pleasantly surprised that others joined in that debate and agreeing what, uh, with Speaker Hughes and what he has been saying for a long time now about his concerns about uh, about the governor's office's uh, reaction in this, this uh, pandemic issue. Okay. But also one thing that your listeners need to know is that with Greg, they get a true problem solver, someone who, has the experience to get down and really solve some of these critical issues when you're talking about things like housing, when you're talking about economic development. What I believe um, the voters need to understand is that we represent a Utah unifying ticket, one that uh, believes that prosperity in Utah needs to be spread across the entire state and not just along the Wasatch Front. Um, Even as beautiful as it is up there, Let's spread that prosperity throughout the entire
9: state. All right. Very good. Got to keep it tight there. Thanks, Victor Iverson, uh, representing the Greg Hughes campaign. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Next, we're going to go to uh, Representative Rob Bishop uh, as part of the Thomas Wright ticket. Uh, Congressman Bishop, uh, you are a veteran of many a debate. Uh, What were you hoping to uh, accomplish with Thomas tonight, and how do you think it went?
7: Well, thank you, Boyd. You know, this election cycle has been extremely different. With the coronavirus stopping all sorts of in-person meetings, it's very difficult for people to actually ha- take some time and listen to issues and work them through. Everything is coming through simply by prepaid commercials. However, um, as as well as was this is the first time I think people had a chance to listen to all four of the candidates going over the same questions. Even though a minute format is very difficult once again to try and get those things through, uh, your ideas through, especially on complex issues. I was proud that I thought Thomas did a great job in not speaking about platitudes, but trying to come up with specifics of what he was attempting to do. In the first question about what you could do because of, you know, the situation with the rioting, he came up with the idea of a governor does have control on the by through his commissioner on the post standards, the peace officer standards and training. And he would actually make sure that those kinds of efforts, on the curriculum would change to make a difference. On the housing issue, he gave the specific about what you could do with big box parking lots, uh, specifics on what's happening with facial resign- re- recognition issues that we're going through there. With education, um, you know, the, com- the problems with high-stakes testing, which is difficult because some of the candidates that were on there actually encourage high-stakes testing in education. Some of them actually passed legislation to implement it. But it's, one once again, one of those questions that needs to be asked because it's the wrong direction Mm -hmm. with assessments and standards on education in the future. So I was happy that he was able to give some ideas, but he was also able to come up with some specific things that the new governor can actually do to solve problems instead of just talking in in, in generalities of how nice it is if we could all just get along. All right.
9: Fantastic. Congressman Rob Bishop, thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate your perspective, as always, uh, from the Thomas Wright campaign. Uh, We're going to jump now uh, to the uh, Spencer Cox campaign and uh, Senator Deidre Henderson. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, Give you about two and a half uh, minutes here. Uh, What was your hope going in for the lieutenant governor? How do you think he did?
8: Well, I think that the the lieutenant governor did an incredible job. Um, I think everybody was able to see uh, the leader and the character of the person um, that I believe will be our next governor. Um, Certainly, um, the the, the Spencer that so many of us know and love came shining through tonight. Um, He is a conservative leader. He has big ideas, and he has the experience that's necessary uh to 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 continue uh, leading the state and he has helped lead our state in the last 10 years through the the most prosperous decade and in state history and he has the experience and to continue to to lead us out of um the economic problems that we're all facing because of covid19 and lead us into prosperity once again he believes um in utah he believes in utah and i think that he reflects the very best that utah has to offer um, and uh, and I, I just I couldn't be more proud of him. He's got uh, great ideas for education to restore innovation in the classroom to make sure that our teachers are being adequately paid and that we're uh, getting rid of unnecessary regulations that tie their hands and, and sack the love of, of teaching that, that we've heard so much about. Um, he, is, uh, he has been you know, an incredible leader on the COVID front. And I was really disappointed to, to hear how and that has been politicized by other candidates. It certainly has been something that he has not politicized and he's been very, very careful about. And I'm incredibly proud of the state's response. And our good numbers actually speak for themselves. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, you know, are those good numbers actually show that the state of Utah has done a good job. Um, and that is the credit of all of the people of Utah working together, sacrificing, doing what's necessary to make sure that we save lives while at the same time, Um, getting back to work as quickly as possible so that we can uh, continue to, um, you know, to, to, to recover economically.
9: All right. State Senator Deidre Henderson, running mate to Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox. Thanks for joining us for a special edition tonight. Uh, And then finally, we'll go to the uh, John Huntsman campaign. Marty Carpenter joining us tonight. Marty, how you doing?
1: Good, Boyd. How you doing? Thanks for having me on.
9: You bet. Great to have you on. Uh, So give us a a quick assessment uh, in terms of what was the goal coming into the debate tonight and uh, how did the former governor do?
1: Well, I think you saw four men on stage tonight who all want to serve our state very well, and that's a positive. But What I think you also saw and that most Utahns saw tonight in watching the debate is that one of those men is uniquely prepared to serve us during these very unique times we're in. Uh, Governor Huntsman laid out something that none of the other candidates have brought to the table throughout this entire campaign, and that's a big idea and a big vision. Everyone on the stage tonight has an X-point plan to get our economy back to where it was. Governor Huntsman has one, his opponents have one. But only one candidate on the stage has a long-term vision to more than double the state's GDP. We have about $180 billion economy here in the state. Governor Huntsman has a plan to take that to over $500 billion over the next 10 years by focusing on various elements that we already have set up in our state, our defense tech sector, our biotech sector, and, uh, and our financial sector, and weaving those together in a way that no one else has envisioned yet, in a way that doubles our economy. That's how we pay for education. That's how we put people back to work. That's how we make sure we don't have to have our kids and our grandkids move away from the state. So the biggest difference to me tonight was that everyone's got a plan to get back to normal. One guy on the stage has a plan to take Utah where it needs to be. The governor brought up that point. When was the last time we had a big idea in this state? I'll tell you when it was. It was sometime between 2005 and 2009 when John Huntsman laid out his economic plan that laid the foundation for 15 years of economic growth. A lot of that's gone away because of the pandemic. He's got the vision to not only put it back into place, but to grow it from there and double the size of the state's economy.
9: All right. Marty Carpenter from the John Huntsman campaign. Appreciate you joining us tonight. And there you have it. Just a, a quick assessment. It's uh, always interesting, the big presidential debates. You have the uh, spin room where everyone's trying to uh, say what they did. I think that was a good assessment from uh, each of our guests tonight, from uh, State Senator Deidra Henderson, uh, Victor Iverson from down southern Utah, who is uh, Greg Hughes' running mate, uh, Representative Rob Bishop uh, with Thomas Wright. And then uh, we just heard Marty Carpenter from the Huntsman campaign. Uh, so that gives us some really good assessment. There's still more to come. We're going to step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to give you a couple more questions you ought to be asking yourself before you cast a vote for anybody. We'll break down the rest of the debate. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Final segment of a special hour of coverage here on KSL News Radio, the Utah gubernatorial debate tonight. Uh, we're going to continue to break that down. If you missed any of the debate tonight or any of our program here from 7 to 8, uh, you can actually go back and listen to the podcast, KSL Politics Podcast, and uh, catch all of that. It was a great debate tonight, it showed why Utah is different. From the rest of the country when it comes to this kind of political debate, Uh, there was no nastiness at all. There was uh, some good debate. There were some good challenges to uh, different areas of policy and performance. And those are all good. Those are all safe. Those are all right. We should have that. Again, it's not about not disagreeing. It's just disagreeing better. And I think all the candidates did a good job of that tonight. And uh, one of the things that we always talk about is, in terms of specifics, uh, something I'm always looking for when I listen to a debate is what kind of unique specifics do you get? That's where the differentiation often happens. Uh, and so I want to do some things real quick as we come down the home stretch here, as we listen to the the final comments. Uh, a lot of interesting uh, debate around education, education funding. Uh, Is that going to be possible? Where will cuts have to happen because the uh, economic downturn caused by the coronavirus? Uh, I want to go to a a quick comment from John Huntsman as it relates to education that was different than the other three.
3: One of the biggest risks we face going forward is thinking small. So when was the last time the state had a big idea? Probably a very long time. So if we're going to do something special... For our kids and for our families and for our future, because I've seen how the Chinese are educating their kids are doing a pretty darn good job of it. The only way forward is to double our state's GDP. We can talk, talk, talk about everything else. We have to earn our way there, as I found out as governor before. I have a plan to take our GDP from 180 billion bucks to 500 billion bucks, and it's based around three industries that are $100 billion each in terms of what they can do, biotechnology, finance, and defense. We can make it happen, but we can also make it happen through public lands. The federal government owns far too much, and more of what we should get should be dedicated to education like so many of the states in our neighborhood have been able to do.
9: All right. That's, uh, again, a very unique answer that the answer to education was really around the GDP and earning our way uh, in order to be able to fund that really fascinating and very specific, which is something uh, I always encourage people to listen for. All right. We're going to go to the, the closing statements from each of the candidates now. A uh, chance to hear what they... Left as their final message. This is also important. Uh, I always call this sticking the landing. uh, That matters. You can have a great debate performance, but if you don't stick the landing, this doesn't count quite the way it could have. Uh, And so, let's go to the closing statements. And uh, we are going to start uh, with uh, Greg Hughes, former Speaker of the House. Uh, Here's uh, his closing remarks.
6: Thank you. Let me go back to my opening statement. I'm the conservative candidate for governor with a proven track record. Uh, Look, we have people in this state that would like to see this state turn purple, turn blue. Uh, They're registering as Republicans at record uh, rates, and they're saying anyone but Hughes. That should tell you something about the, the course we have forward. I'm not afraid to say that I support our president, President Trump. I have seen firsthand as a public servant what he's done for this state specifically uh, that he'll probably never get the credit for or people will never be able to, won't know the extent that he watches and he does lead as president uh, and impact the lives for the good for the average Joe, the average Jane in in our state. I'm asking for your support. I'm asking for your vote. We are surging. You're watching polls, and you'll see polls that show that we are the only ones in double digits uh, going up in the polls and earning your support. I ask you to give us a serious look, put us to the test. Hughes and Iverson uh, we we will uh, do all we can to earn your support, and we would appreciate and be honored to have it.
9: Okay, former Speaker of the House Greg Hughes there. his uh, closing remarks is a uh, punctuating statement in terms of what he wants to do as the conservative candidate that's very much been uh, part of his mantra throughout. Uh, Let's go now to uh, Thomas Wright, who I think had a very strong debate performance tonight. Uh, Here's how he ended the evening.
4: A close friend of mine told me before I got into this race that running for office is an insider's game. And he said, Thomas, you're an outsider, and they don't like outsiders in their arena unless it's with their permission. I've learned that the hard way, but I'm in this race, and I'm in it to win it. I'm getting an incredible amount of phone calls from everyday citizens that are fed up with government because they think government isn't looking out for them anymore. They think government's looking out for each other. And not only that, we're getting a record amount of investing going on in our campaign. We've raised more money this month than any other campaign. And I want people to know, Thomas Wright can win this race. Don't fall for the polling. The polling is an insider's game. The polling will lead you to believe that public opinion has already set. And if we believed that, Hillary Clinton would be president. And Aaron Mendenhall would not be mayor of Salt Lake City. And so many other races that we've seen. I'm in this race to win it. But outsiders can only win when other outsiders see the wisdom in turning government over. I'm Thomas Wright. I'm running for governor. And I'm sincerely asking for your vote in this primary election.
9: All right, strong finish for uh, Thomas Wright. He had some really interesting moments throughout the evening. Uh, Again, uh, really good performance there by uh, by him. And uh, now we're going to go to the Lieutenant Governor, Spencer Cox, who many people are familiar with. And uh, he played to many of those themes throughout the evening, his connection to the state and uh, how things have been going
5: over the last seven years. And here's how he chose to wrap up the night. So yesterday, (laughs) my dad pulled me aside and he said, are you sure you really want to do this? We're looking at a global pandemic, um, one of the worst economies in the history of our state. Uh, we threw an earthquake in there for good measure. And, uh, of course, we've seen racial unrest and the riots in our, in our capital city the last couple days. My answer to him was very simple. I'm doing this because I love this state. I care deeply about the people that live here. I believe we're unique. I believe we're special. I believe that we are a light to the nation. I'm running because the 2010s were the most prosperous decade in our state's history. And I'm running because the 2020s can be even better. Look, my friends, fellow Utahns, politics in this country is broken, but it's not broken here in Utah. We can reject negative campaigning. We can work together. We can bring together the voices of those who feel like they're not being heard. As your governor, I will get in the trenches with you and get my hands dirty. We will work side by side. We will shine the light on you and shine that light for the nation. I'm Spencer Cox, and I ask for your vote. All right,
9: that's uh, Lieutenant Governor Cox. Uh, His closing remarks and then finally rounding out the evening uh, was the former governor of the state, uh, John Huntsman. Uh, Throughout the night, uh, had a lot of big ideas, big plans, and uh, this is how he chose to wrap up the night.
3: Uh, I want to give a shout-out to Michelle Kapusi, who's the great mayor of Provo, for taking this journey with me as the greatest running mate anybody could ask for. People ask all the time why I'm doing this again. I don't need a title. I don't need a portrait hanging on the wall in the Capitol. I've got those. I'm standing here tonight because I love this state. This is my home, and this is your home. I'm running because I think this state has a destiny a destiny to become the crossroads of the world. And I believe I can get us there. Now, in a few days, votes will be cast, then all the political noise will be over, all of the politicking. Then this whole thing will be about one thing, leadership. If now isn't the time for experienced leaders with a track record of bringing people together and getting real economic results, I don't know when is I humbly ask for your vote. May God bless the great state of Utah. All
9: right. That's uh, John Huntsman and his uh, closing statements there talking about Utah as crossroads to the world. Big picture, big vision there, specific plan. Uh, So if you missed any of our coverage tonight, if you missed the debate itself, again, you can go to KSL Politics Podcast and listen to that. And as you're listening to it, remember the questions that we've been talking about tonight. When you listen, what does that Make you think of? Does it make you think of the candidate and them in office and power, or does it make you think about your life, your community, your goals? Is it a vision of themselves in office, or is it a vision for the people of the state? Uh, How will they make a difference if they run and lose is a great question to ask yourself. Do they talk in specifics or generalities? Specifics are always better. Specifics are actually measurable. And then finally, what are they for? We know what they're against, we know they're against their opponents but what are they really for all right that's going to wrap it up for us uh, tonight uh, special coverage here on KSL News Radio the Utah gubernatorial debate a reminder uh, mail in ballots will be uh, mailed out on the 9th so that's coming up very quickly the uh, election is on the 30th uh, much more coverage to come here on KSL News Radio. Stay with us uh, for continuing, ongoing coverage. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News and host of KSL's Inside Sources. Have a great rest of the evening.
0: A gun in
10: the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me, and this is the point where I thought I'm going to die today.
0: Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela.